So you recall that in Genesis 45, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and invited them to come and be with him. Please come near to me. He said them to go back to Israel or Jacob and to bring him down to, to bring everybody in to come. Verse 46, pardon me, chapter 46 and verse 1 we read, Israel took his journey. In other words, Israel was active here, having heard about Joseph's invitation to come. Israel was making a decision. He was exercising faith. Faith in the relaying of Joseph's message to him by his sons. Faith that they were telling him the truth. Faith that the invitation was real. Faith is living as if something is true. And Israel, in taking his journey, as we read in chapter 46 and verse 1, Israel was living as if it was true that Joseph really was alive, really was the vizier of Egypt, really had invited Israel and his family to dwell with him in Egypt. So Israel took his journey, and Israel journeyed by faith, as it were. And as Israel journeyed, so must we, like him, journey by faith. Behold that thought, because neither Israel's faith nor our faith is the main emphasis here in this section of Scripture. If I said that this passage that I just read to you, Genesis 46, 1, to about the midway point of 47, if I said that the main emphasis here was Israel's decision and action to go down to Egypt, I wouldn't be exactly right. I wouldn't be wrong per se, because you do see Israel deciding and acting, exercising faith here in this passage, but I wouldn't be exactly right. See, in this passage, Israel does make a decision. He does journey by faith. But that's not the main emphasis of this section of Scripture. The main emphasis of this passage is on the provision of God for His people. God provides for Israel and His family. God cares for and provides for Israel. God cares for and provides for the children of Israel. God cares for and provides for his people. That's what we see mainly happening here in this passage. So let me expand on that before we circle back around at the end to this idea of journeying by faith. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Well, let's look actually at verse 2 to 4. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God reassures Israel of the relationship in which he stands to him. Look at verse 3. 
I am God, the God of your father. We read in verse 1 that Israel offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Israel was old at this time. It wasn't the first time he had offered sacrifices. Israel had had many dealings with God up to this point in his life. But here he's consciously approaching the God of his father. God comes and says, I am the God of your father. Jacob perhaps wanted reassurance that as God had been with Abraham and as God had been with Isaac, so he would still continue to be with him. Perhaps this is the import of verse 1 where it tells us that he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. It seems from 47 that Israel had become somewhat cynical by this time of his life. Look at verse 9 of chapter 47. Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the day of their sojourning. Perhaps Jacob had grown old, Israel had grown old and become somewhat cynical. Sometimes we see as people age, they get a little bit grumpy, get a little bit despairing. A little bit downcast. They can only see that which is dark, that which is shadowy. And for some reason, they sometimes seem to lose the light a little bit. So maybe here, Jacob offers up a sacrifice to the God of his father. See whether he is still going to be his God. That's somewhat speculative, but God comes and says to him explicitly, I am the God of your father. I am the God of your father. And certainly, God intends that to be reassurance that he will be with him as he was with Abraham and as he was with Isaac. Consider what follows the statement, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Since that reassurance is what follows, we know that the statement, I am the God of your father, is also intended to be reassuring. Because the tone of everything God says to Israel in this section is reassuring. And so this statement, I am the God of your father, is to be understood in that sense. God is here reminding Israel that he has been the God of Isaac before him and implicitly the God of Abraham before that. In other words, as God appears to him and reassures him, he's reminding Israel that God's care for him while in Egypt is going to be a matter of covenant faithfulness. Promise keeping. Remember that God had promised to Abraham way back to be God to him and to his offspring after him. Genesis 17 and verse 7. God had promised to do Abraham's family good and to settle them eventually in the land of Canaan. And we know that it was not Ishmael but Isaac, not Esau but Jacob, Israel, who were heirs of these promises. And so here Jacob is, Israel is firmly in that line of promise. He's a child of promise. 
God's essentially reiterating here then covenantal promises to Israel as Israel contemplates leaving the promised land for an unknown future in Egypt. God's reassuring Israel of his covenantal presence and his covenant faithfulness, his remembrance of and his continued intention to fulfill the promises that he had made to Israel's forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. God is reassuring Israel of his covenantal care and provision for him as he goes down into Egypt. So that's what verses 2 to 4 tell us. Verses 5 to 27 basically report to us the fact of Israel's journey into Egypt, the fact of Israel's journey into Egypt, and they're self-explanatory, so we won't really spend time there. And that brings us then to verse 28, where we see that God uses the means of a forerunner to care for the children of Israel. God is going to be faithful to his covenant promises. God is covenantally bound to Israel. God is covenantally bound to the children of Israel. God is going to care for them. That's what we were told in that exchange at the beginning of this chapter. He hasn't forgotten his promises. He continues to intend to fulfill these promises. He's going to continue to care for them. And he's going to exercise that care for them in Egypt by means of a forerunner. If Israel and his family stay in Canaan, they may go down to the pit. For the worst of the famine hasn't even hit yet. As we'll read at the end of Genesis 47 about a worsening situation. If only the people of God, if only Israel, if only the children of Israel had someone who could preserve their lives from going down to the pit. Wait. Someone can't. There is a king who can save them. A savior king. One who went down to the pit, as Genesis 40 and verse 15 tells us, and was raised up again and exalted. One who has gone before God's people into a state of blessedness and who has prepared a place for them. That where he is, there they may be also. Joseph has gone before them into Egypt. He has actually passed through the pit to the ascended throne where he now rules and reigns on behalf of his brothers. And he has prepared a place for them that where he is, there they may be also. And he said, come to me. In this passage, we see the generosity, the care of this Savior King for his people. We see him in chapter 45, 
sending wagons to bring his family into Egypt. Chapter 45 and verse 27 says, When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Joseph, the Savior King, had sent wagons to carry him into Egypt. And not just empty wagons, but there were gifts accompanying them. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision. And then in verse, or pardon me, in chapter 46 at the end, and in the beginning of 47, Joseph makes provision for them to be settled in the best of the land. The land of Goshen. Joseph, the Savior King, is providing for his people lavishly, generously, everything that is needful for them. Interestingly, Israel's favorite thing about this whole process is that he gets to see the Savior King face to face. At the end of 46, Israel says to Joseph in verse 30, Now let me die since I have seen your face. I know that you are still alive. In spite of all the wagons, all the gifts, all the best of the land of Egypt, Israel is happy just to see that Savior King through whom all of this has come to him. By whom the invitation, from whom the invitation has come. He's glad to have journeyed by faith and reached the end of his journey and seen this risen and exalted one face to face. The parallel should be obvious, especially by now as we've been working our way through this Joseph narrative. In this passage, we see God's covenantal care for his people. The promises that he had made to care for them all the way through the course of their lives, to do them good. We see God keeping these promises, and he keeps them by the means, temporarily speaking, of Joseph in this instance. But Joseph so obviously in this whole narrative, prefigures another, namely Jesus Christ. In these couple chapters, we read a story that if I told you in general terms, you wouldn't know whether it was Genesis or Matthew. You wouldn't know whether it was Genesis or Mark or Luke or John. If I said to you, I'm preaching on a section where God has appointed a servant to go down to the pit, to be raised and exalted, to rule over his brothers for their preservation and blessedness, and to prepare a place for them. 
and bring them to himself that where he is, there they may be also. You wouldn't know which book of the Bible I'm preaching from. That's how striking the similarities are. What we see in this passage is that God is going to covenantally care for his people. He hasn't forgotten his promises. He is the God of Israel's fathers. And he's the God of our fathers. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship the God of the prophet Isaiah. The God of the prophet Malachi. We worship the God of Simeon who said, Let your servant depart in peace, for now my eyes see. We worship the God of the apostles, Peter, James, John. We worship the God of Saul of Tarsus. We worship the God of all these men and women named in the greetings at the ends of the epistles. We worship the God of Augustine or Augustine, however you want to say it. We worship the God of John Calvin and John Wesley. We worship the God of Spurgeon, Carey. We worship the God who our grandparents worshipped. He's the God of our fathers. His faithfulness endures. His faithfulness is everlasting. His covenant is sure and firm and solid. It doesn't change. It doesn't wane. We don't have to worry that he was the God of our fathers, but he won't be our God. Each week when we assemble, we hear his law and his gospel read as we participate in the sacraments. We eat and we drink from this table. We're reminded. It's as if God says to us, I am the God of your fathers. And I will be with you. God's covenantal care continues. And what he did in temporal terms for Israel for the children of Israel, for his people of old, here in these couple of chapters, he is doing for us. He sent Joseph down into the pit and then raised him up so that Israel and his family would never have to go into the pit. So that the famine wouldn't strike them in such a way that it killed them. So the provision would be made for their preservation. God sent Joseph down into the pit and raised him up. So that his people would be blessed. With everything that was needful for them. So that they could live in blessedness with their Savior King. In a land of plenitude. That's what God did for his people in these couple of chapters. Temporally. It's not the gospel. Joseph isn't 
the savior of the world in that sense, but he prefigures these temporal blessings, prefigure greater blessings. This temporal savior king prefigures a greater savior king. In some sense, Egypt here in some ways prefigures our eternal rest in heaven. What God did here in these couple of chapters for his people is what he is doing with us presently. He has sent Jesus ahead of us as a forerunner to go down to the pit and to be exalted so that we never have to go down to the pit in the first place. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. He will not taste death because Jesus has tasted death for everyone. Jesus has made every provision for our journey. He sent wagons to carry us, as it were. Jesus has sent us the Holy Spirit to be with us as God's covenantal presence with us until we reach our new home. He sent wagons to carry us the means of grace. All of these things which nourish and strengthen our faith, the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, corporate worship, the Lord's Day, the church, assistance for us. He's invited us to come to be with him. He's gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we may be also. Now we circle back around to where we began. Genesis 46 and verse 1. So Israel took his journey. So Israel took his journey. You see, we have a Savior King who has gone before us and who beckons us to come, who has sent wagons for the journey, who promises to be with us as he was with our fathers. He says, come, draw near to me, please. Come, live with me, be with me. This was the invitation to Israel. And we read, so Israel journeyed. So Israel took his journey. What about us? How will our story read? How will your story read? So John took his journey. So Kamar took his journey. So Sabio took his journey. You see? Israel exercised faith, living as if it was true. That Joseph really was alive. That he really was the vizier of Egypt. That he really did invite Israel and his family to come. That his sons really had relayed the message accurately. So Israel took his journey. What about you? Will you live as if it's really true? Christ really has gone before us. 
He really is exalted. He really has made provision for us and he really does beckon us to come and to be with him. Will you live as if it's true? Believers, this is the nature of the Christian life that we would take our journey, each one of us individually. We can travel together as Israel and his sons and their son's sons and his son's daughters, as they all travel together. We can travel together, but each one had to be on the wagons. Each one of us individually has to decide to go. You need to take your journey. You need to do it by faith, living as if this is really true. And if you're prepared to do that, we can all go together. To the unbeliever, the invitation of the gospel is that Jesus has gone before us. He's passed through that threshold that all of us have to pass through at some point. That threshold from the here to the hereafter, from time to eternity. Jesus has gone before. He went to the cross and suffered the punishment that sinners deserved so that we would never have to suffer. He experienced a famine, so to speak, so that his brothers would never have to go hungry. He's been raised, he's been exalted. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he uses it for the good of his people. Dispensing what is needful to us as we make our way through our lives. That we might be conformed to his image. We might have the graces that we need to persevere. Until he brings us home to live with him forever. We trust in him, even though we die physically, we never experience that spiritual death that Jesus experienced. We never suffer the wrath of God that Jesus experienced at the cross. Our bodies will be raised in the same manner as Christ was raised. And one day we will live with him forever. Where he is, there we who trust in him shall one day be also. It's going to be a wonderful state of blessedness. As I'm sure it was wonderful when Israel and his family got to Egypt. They saw the land of Goshen before them. The famine was severe in Canaan so that they had nowhere to pasture their flocks. Genesis 47 and verse 4. But when they got to Goshen, they saw what was needful for their flocks. It would have been relief, plenitude, bounty. So it will be when we reach our final destination. But as it was with Israel, so it will be for us. 
the best thing about it is that we're going to see the one who has invited us. The one who has made provision for us all the way through. That brother who went down to the pit and has now been raised, who says, now, come, draw near to me. We're going to see him. And that's going to be the best thing about it. We have a great Savior. And we are invited to take our journey by faith that where he is, there we may be also. This is the nature of the Christian life, living as if it's true, that Christ really died for sinners, was raised for our justification, and that we may live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness 